If you would, grab your uh, pew Bibles or the scriptures you brought with you and turn to Luke chapter 12. Uh, Luke chapter 12 is where we're going to spend some time uh, this morning, starting in verse 35. As you know, we've spent uh, the past number of weeks, a couple months, looking at the, the book of Hebrews. And in light of Palm Sunday this morning, I thought maybe we'd take a break uh, from the book of Hebrews and uh, think a little bit more specifically uh, about this day on the church calendar and its uh, implications and reminders for us uh, here this morning. In the book of uh, Acts, you remember how Acts starts. Jesus is with his disciples as post-resurrection, and he's talking, sharing, encouraging, giving instruction to the disciples, and then seemingly out of nowhere, he's lifted up, taken up uh, into the clouds right in front of the disciples' eyes, this group of, of men here watching him depart from them. And as you can imagine, they're kind of shocked by this and kind of rocks their world, world a little bit. Here's the guy that we've been following. He's res- resurrected and now he's, he's leaving us. It feels like he's abandoning us. And these two angels appear uh, to them and said, basically, the same way you see him leaving you is the same way that he's going to appear again. He's, he's going to come back again. It's one of the, the initial glimpses that we get about the second coming, the promise, the hope of the second coming. There are 300, let's see, 260 chapters in the New Testament, okay? 260 chapters. 318 times the second coming is mentioned. So if you do the math, for every 25 verses that you read, uh, you're going to come across at least one instance of the second coming. It's a big push. It's a a big deal uh, in the New Testament as well as in the Bible itself. And that's what I want to spend some time talking about, is the second coming. After I read the passage, I'm going to make the connection between what does the second coming have to do with Palm Sunday. Just be patient. Uh, Let's read Luke chapter 12, uh, starting in verse 35. Let's stand as you're able for the reading of God's word, and I'll read through verses uh, 46. So 12, 35 to 46. Let's hear God's word to us. Be dressed, ready for service, and keep your lamps burning. Like servants waiting for their master return from a wedding banquet, so that when he comes and knocks, they can immediately open the door for him. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them watching when he comes. Truly, I tell you, he will dress himself to serve, will have them recline at the table, and will come and wait on them. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them ready, even if he comes in the middle of the night or toward daybreak. But understand this. If the owner of the house has known at what if the owner of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have let the house be broken into. You also must be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. Peter asked, Lord, are you telling this parable to us or to everyone? The Lord answered, Who then is the faithful and wise manager, whom the master puts in charge of his servants to give them their food allowance at the proper time, it will be good for that servant whom the master finds doing so when he returns. Truly, I tell you, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But suppose the servant says to himself, my master has taken a long time in coming, and he then begins to beat the other servants, both men and women, and to eat and drink and get drunk. The master of that servant will come on the day when he does not expect him. At an hour he is not aware of, he will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the unbelievers. 
This is God's word. It's absolutely true and given to us in love. Would you pray with me? Father, as we uh, gather before your word, before your scriptures, uh, we pray that you would give us eyes to see and simply ears to hear. In Christ's name, amen. Would you please be seated? So what's the connection between uh, the second coming of Christ and Palm uh, Sunday? And how are we served in thinking about it uh, here this morning? Well, the connection in the short answer is Palm Sunday is a foreshadowing of Christ coming back, of Christ returning again. Uh, This day, Palm Sunday, is a day that the church recognizes as Jesus going into Jerusalem, riding into Jerusalem. There's this celebration, these cries of Hosanna. There's the palm branches, and he's riding in on a donkey. And it's a fulfillment of what is talked about in the book of Zechariah, the minor prophet. There it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey. And this is a picture where we celebrate Jesus, the righteous Messiah, coming in humbly into the city. He's not riding in on a war horse. He's not riding in to conquer, but he's riding in to save. And if you look at uh, the, the teaching from this moment on in the Gospels, before the resurrection, but after his riding in, you see that Jesus begins to talk about his second coming again. It's almost like he's saying, okay, we've got the first coming taken care of. Let's think about when I'm coming back again. Because what's happening here is it's a foreshadowing. It's, it's alluding to a time when I'm coming back again. And that's the connection. That Jesus comes in uh, meek and mild, so to speak, on this donkey. But it point, it's pointing forward to the time, to the reality, when he will come back again. Now, typically when the, the church talks about the second coming of Christ, they, they kind of swing in two directions. One is this preoccupation with dates and political necessities that must take place and numbers and all this kind of crazy stuff to figure out when and where it's going to happen. Or people, the church swings the other way and they just don't talk about it at all. Uh, it just gets swept to the side, swept into the margins. But when you look at Scripture, when you look at how the Bible talks about the second coming, it's not preoccupied with numbers and political events. So rest assured, we're not going to talk about Israel and what needs to happen there uh, this morning. I'm not going to give you any dates to put on your calendar. But the Bible does make a big deal out of the second coming, as alluded to a moment ago, with all the references that you see in the New Testament especially. And, and the weight and the, the thrust of those passages is to be faithful to be expectant, to be looking, to be hopeful, to, in, to be anticipating this day. It, and to, to the point where you're living in light of that reality, in light of that truth. And it gives you hope today in the present. And so what I want to do with Luke chapter 12, with these basically three parables, three separate parables, is to ask it, how does this passage help us as we think about the second coming of Christ? If Christ has come in on Palm Sunday and he's riding in humbly as as a Savior, how should we think about his appearing again? How should we expect that and what should we do in living in light of that? So three points. If you're into outlines and making progress with what's going on, I want to talk about being ready for the king. I want to talk about being unprepared for the king. And finally, uh, being faithful to the king. So ready, unprepared, and faithful to the king. Uh, the first parable is about servants who are waiting for their master, okay? 
uh, the master is, is at a wedding feast. And these wedding feasts, they, it's more than just a Saturday afternoon that's out of your schedule, but it could go on for days, okay? And these servants are at home waiting, waiting for their master to return. And their waiting is looked like at how? They, their, their garments are, are girded up. With the, it's the picture of being ready for action. And the lamps are on. The lights are burning uh, because there's darkness around them. And so they're ready. The lights are on and they're dressed uh, appropriately. And you can notice too, it's, it's, I think it's key or helpful to notice that the master is away at night. They're waiting for the master to return at night. And in a sense, that, that darkness that these uh, servants are in the midst of, it characterizes kind of our life between Christ's first coming and his second coming. There's, there's a darkness around there in the sense of things are not perfect. They're, we still live in this broken world. And they're to live with their lamps on, with their lights on. And the thing about the darkness is it's easy to sleep. It's easy to doze off. It's easy to be distracted. It's easy to be preoccupied with other things. And so I think that the, the takeaway for us is waiting for Jesus at times means uh, avoiding being sleepy, avoiding being numb, avoiding being distracted because it, there's this kind of darkness all around us that makes it easy for us to be distracted and look the other way. Paul in 1 Thessalonians says, So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and sober. That picture of needing to be awake, needing to be sober. So what does it mean not to be sleepy? What does it mean to be alert? How do we live expectantly uh, for his coming again from this? Well, one thing I'll suggest is remembering our eternal reality over our temporal reality. In other words, letting our eternal reality uh, trump or influence us more than our temporal, temporal reality. The, our circumstances, our day-to-day life, the things that we're involved in, that those things are important. What God is doing in your circumstances is significant because he's guiding you with his hand of providence. He's, he's teaching you. He's shaping you. Those things are important. I'm not saying the temporal is not important, that today and the here and now is not important. But what I am trying to to get us to remember is my eternal reality is much more significant, is much more weighty, is much more, um, should be the thing that's forming and shaping me more than what I'm experiencing on a day-to-day basis. Uh, Think about it uh, it maybe like this. If that is true, if my eternal reality is uh, to be the thing that I'm keyed in on and focused upon, Sometimes we need to ask ourselves, well, what is controlling me? Because when we hit those moments when we feel sleepy, when we feel numb, when we feel indifferent to Christ coming again or the reality of the gospel and God in my life, sometimes something else is controlling us. Something else is influencing us. So, for example, let's say you're, you're angry. Not angry because you stubbed your toe, but you are just angry at a situation or a person or a circumstance. Sometimes it's helpful to ask, why am I so angry? Why is this controlling me? What is controlling me? What is going on in my life that, that the eternal, that the things of God is not having a voice and a say in? Or when you're desperate, full of despair, when you're full of depression and doubt and self-pity, why are those emotions so strong? Why are you feeling that way? Is it because something else is controlling you outside of, of God himself 
in his word. Think about this situation. Let's say, for example, you have a goal. that something you want to achieve this calendar year. You want, you want to take that vacation, or you want to make this purchase, and you've been saving and calculating and doing this and that. And then something comes along, and it blocks that goal. It says to you it's not going to happen. Uh, the funds are cut off, or your time is, has to be spent in another place. And I understand that on one level you get disappointed by that, and that's, that's normal. But if you're getting angry, and, and if that throws you into a spiral of, of, of crushing depression or disappointment or frustration, then it's incumbent upon us to ask, what is controlling me? Why is that so significant to me? And how come God and his word and his reality is not becoming more of an influence in my life? Or maybe you think about this waiting with expectation like this. Why do we get sleepy? Or what do we do when we do get sleepy? When we do get kind of dozy and we don't feel like being alert and we don't want to be alert to uh, spiritual things uh, in our lives. And Jesus simply says in this parable, live with your light on. Live with the lights on. And of course, the, the, the light in the Christian life is, is God's word. It's the reality of, of God in our lives. It's the truth of the gospel, the truth of who he is. And so when we find ourselves being sleepy, find ourselves being indifferent, find ourselves being distracted, one thing we can do is we can say to ourselves, I want to refuse to be influenced by this temporal. I want to be refuse to be influenced by what I'm experiencing. Instead, I want to be uh, influenced uh, by the things of God, by the reality of God in my life, the eternal more than the temporal. And don't think this is uh, unusual, because we see this in the, the lives of the, of the saints of old. You open the book of Psalms, and you see them expressing in prayer to God their struggles, their frustrations, and you get them refusing, if you will, to surrender to their temporal, everyday, worldly experiences— uh, in choosing instead to believe in the things of God over what they're seeing and what they're experiencing uh, in their days. A couple examples. In Psalm 42, the psalmist says, Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. You see what he's doing? He, he's grabbing himself by the, the collar, so to speak, and saying, Why are you down like this? Why are you downcast? Remember who God is. Remember the truth of the gospel. Or Psalm 103, it's expressed like this. He says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with, with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. What's he doing? He's, he's refusing to let the temporal have ultimate say in his life. And he's modeling for us, hey, this is what it looks like to let God and the eternal and his truth and his light influence my heart, win my life, control my hopes and dreams and desires. He's saying, in effect, you know, people may speak ill of me. That's fine because the voice that really matters is what God says about me. I may have failed in this area. I may have done wrong here and it's uh, put some things in jeopardy. But it hasn't put in jeopardy God and his love for me, my relationship with him. Uh, he knows my failings, he knows where I fall short, and yet he accepts me by his grace. It's that refusal saying the eternal is going to have influence, is going to have sway in my life. And when we do that, 
we're not going to get sleepy. We're not going to grow indifferent. We're not going to be distracted by what's going on in our present and everyday uh, lives. The second thing, um, talk about the dangers of being uh, caught off guard, uh, of being unprepared for the king. When I was in college, the, the, my major in the school was big enough where there was more than one professor uh, offering the classes I had to take uh, for my degree. And so sometimes I would do my homework, so to speak, and ask, talk to other students who had taken this class that I need to take, and who did they take, and what's that professor like, and so on. Because you kind of had that advantage, you could kind of maybe customize it a little bit. And I always tried to get the professor that I knew was basically going to teach the book. You know, they were going to say, uh, here, the test is on these three or four chapters, and the exam is on this date. And you had three or four of those exams, and that was your grade. Uh, because it was predictable. I could, it was just easier to manage, and I knew what to expect. It wasn't always the case, but it was nice when it happened. But say I came into a class, and the teacher sits us down, they give us a syllabus, and they say, here's the plan for the semester, this is your reading, this is what it's going to look like. And then you see at the bottom, only one exam. I'm only going to give you one exam uh, this semester for this class. But the kicker is, I'm not going to tell you when that exam is. Okay? It could be five weeks from now, it could be eight weeks from now, it could be three weeks from now. I'm not going to tell you when it is, and that exam is your grade. You make a C, you get a C in my class. You make an A, you get an A in the class. What's that going to do to you? It's going to say, I've got to be there every day, and I've got to be prepared. I've got to, to have a sense of understanding and competency over the, the material that's being discussed and, and taught on. I've got to be ready to take a test for this. Well, in a sense, that's what the, the, the gist of this parable that he gives us next. Look at verse 39. Jesus says, but understand this. If the owner of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have let the house be broken into. You also must be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. This is a, a parable about the expectation or anticipation of the coming of, of a thief and being on guard, being ready. And what happens when you're not on guard, when you're not prepared, how there's going to be bad consequences for you. If the owner of the house knew when the thief was coming, it would be easy. He would just be there at that time, and he could just go and do other things at any other point because he knows he's safe. But you don't know when the thief is coming. And just like you don't know when the thief is coming, you don't know when Christ is coming. So there's that, that drive, that push to always be prepared, to always be ready, to always be on alert. And I think in a sense that maybe drives us maybe to a question that some of you maybe are asking or thinking, why do I need to be prepared? What is the big deal? Why do I need to be looking and anticipating his return? Why can't I just go about my life as usual, business as usual, tending to my work and to my family and uh, to my faith and things like that? Why do I have to be alert? Why do I have to be prepared? Why do I have to be ready? Well, let me give you three answers, and they come from an old Puritan named Richard Sibbs, and he gives these three reasons as to why there's a need to be ready and to be expectant of Christ, okay? They're, they're very brief. Number one is we need to be ready and watching because of the danger of sin. We need to be ready and watching because of the danger of sin. I've already talked about this a, a little bit, but when I say sin, sometimes some of us go to and we think Ten Commandments, okay? Uh, I, need, I don't need to steal. I don't need to kill anybody. I need to, to tell the truth, uh, so on and so forth. We think about those Ten Commandments. Yes, that's right. But sin is so much more than that. The power of sin is in its inability to, to make you drowsy, to make you sleepy, 
about the reality of God, the reality of truth, the, the reality of, of what is controlling your heart. You think about that, that confession, of, confession of sin that we uh, read earlier. It talked about idols. It talked about the things, that, the good things in our life that we make into ultimate things. And that's the power of sin. To take good things and make those things that the premier, these are the things I'm living for. And the Bible is saying you've, you've got to watch out. You've got to be careful. In fact, what you need to do is keep as best you can short accounts with God. When you see sin, when you see something wrong, to confess it, uh, to take it seriously and bring it to the Lord. Number two, we need to be ready and watchful because we're in a race. Think about how the New Testament especially talks about the Christian life. Uh, Paul often uses this metaphor of a race. That as believers, we're in a race. We have a goal. We have a destination. We have somewhere that we're moving uh, that, that, that what you're experiencing today, the ups and downs, that, that's not the end of the story, but there's something far greater ahead of you. In Hebrews 12, when we get there, we'll read this, where the author says, Let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race set before us. Run with endurance the race set before you. Number three, we need to be ready and watchful because of warfare. Ready and watchful because of warfare. And basically, what Sibs is talking about here, that there's an enemy out there that wants to distract you, that wants to make you numb, that wants to keep you in the dark, that wants you to be sleepy, doesn't want you to experience the richness, the fullness, the, the reality of God's truth, whether you believe he's there or not. Uh, he's, his desire is to, to pull you away from him. Uh, Peter talks about it in his letter, how Satan is a roaring lion seeking somebody to devour that we're in a war, a spiritual battle. That there's somebody that, that wants control of your heart and your life and wants to distract you from the Lord. Well, that's the danger of being unprepared, uh, if you will. Let's talk about the third one, being faithful uh, to the king. We see this third parable in this collection here where the master is away from home. And what he's done is he's, he's picked out a manager or a steward and says, you're in charge. Uh, you're in charge of, of running this while I'm gone. And if he's a good steward, if he's a good manager, he's going to be responsible. He's going to cause it to be successful, the business to be successful, to prosper. He's going to take responsibility and, and provide for the, his, the other servants that are below him, feeding them and making sure they have everything uh, that they want. But there's also a picture, too, it's contrasted with it, the, the servant that's not faithful, that's not on uh, being responsible, so to speak. Let's say, for example, that you own a factory in South Carolina, okay, and you just make stuff, okay, and it's, it's a great factory, it's doing well, but you don't want to live in South Carolina. You want to live in Mississippi because they have better hunting there, okay? And so you live in Mississippi, but you've got this factory in South Carolina, and you've got somebody there uh, that you've hired to manage it, to be the steward of it. Time goes by, and you check in regularly, but too much time has gone by. You've sent emails to this guy, and he's not responding, you try to call him, and he's not taking your calls. And so you get on your plane, and you fly out to South Carolina. You land, check in your hotel. Next day, you get up early, and you go to the factory. You're the first one there. You've got the keys because you're the owner. You go inside the office. You sit down on the couch, and you wait, and you wait. Secretary comes in finally, and she's a little caught off guard. You know, okay, the, the boss guy's here. This is big time. And you ask, where's the manager? What's going on? Well, he's not going to be in today. He's out playing golf. And you get the picture, okay? This is what this parable is talking about. This guy that's been 
placed in charge of this place of responsibility, and he's been delinquent. The boss is away, and so there's no accountability. I can do what I want and behave how I want, and he's done all these things to drive the business to, or to drive the house into the ground. And that's what Jesus is warning about. Don't be unproductive. Don't be unfaithful. Uh, just because I'm gone doesn't mean that you can do whatever you want. I've given you a mission. I've given you a job. I've given you a, a purpose. Be productive in that area. Here's the thing. No matter who you are and, and what you think you bring to the table, God has gifted you in some shape or form. And he wants you to use those gifts for the betterment of his church, for the betterment of his people, for the betterment of his kingdom. And this parable is, is simply encouraging us to be faithful with our gifts, to be good stewards of the things that he's given us for his glory as we wait for him to return. So when he comes back, he can look at our lives and he can say, well done, good and faithful servant. Let me close with this. Three parables. If you read them, you know, um, with a sense of attention, you, you, you get uh, that they're heavy, they're weighty, they're very um, sharp, very black and white in what they're trying to communicate. The need to be ready, to be on the alert, to be watchful for Christ, for him to be uh, dominant in your life, to have that kind of expectation and that kind of, of hope. And, you can, and then you take a look at your own life, and you think, like I do about myself, I haven't always been ready. I have been sleepy. I have been distracted. I haven't been productive. I haven't been as faithful as I need to be, and as I want to be, and as I should be. And we feel the weight of that. But that's the beauty of Palm Sunday. That's the beauty of a day like this, because Palm Sunday is about a Christ, a Messiah, a Savior who rides into Jerusalem, rides in to face the cross, to give his own life. He doesn't ride in to conquer, to destroy, to judge, but he rides in to save. He rides in to lay down his life. He rides in to give himself. If you feel the weight of these parables, of what they're teaching and what they're instructing and what they're trying to, to share and promote in us, then Palm Sunday is for you. Because it points to a Savior who was faithful, who did everything that was asked of him, who laid down his life for us so that we could know what it's like to expect him, to hope for him, to live for him. Will you take a moment now and pray with me? Father, we think about uh, our lives because this parable demands we think about our lives. It, it demands that we uh, rise above and, and take a bird's eye view of how we're spending our time and, and what we're doing, what we're experiencing, and we think about your truth and your reality. And we seek to make that connection. Father, we, we know we struggle. We know it, it, it's, uh, it feels odd at times to expect your coming again because this world feels so dominant and it feels so real. So would you give us eyes of faith to see your truth? If you've come once as a Savior, laying down your life, certainly it's fair to expect that you will come again as our Lord, as our Redeemer, as the one that, that makes everything that is broken perfect and glorious and good again. Would you give us hearts that long for that day? We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.